Welcome to the 2nd of May edition of Worcester Talking News, brought to you by Worcester News and Equipment for the Blind and with kind permission of the Worcester News. I'm Pippa Curtis, editor for this week. John Plush is our recording engineer and Carol Hartle is on copying and admin. Our readers today are Phil Lee. Hello. Jane Fires. Hello. And myself. Unfortunately, Catherine Neal is away this week. She's a bit poorly, so we offer her our best wishes for a speedy recovery. I'd like to extend a warm welcome to any new listeners this week and hope you enjoy our recording. As always, we will include a list of useful telephone numbers, what's on in the local theatres, headline stories, general news stories, sport, thought for the week, birthdays, sunrise and sunset times. And if we don't have a record of your birthday and you'd like to be included, please do get in touch and we can add it to the birthday file. Some notices now. First of all, listeners are kindly reminded to return memory sticks promptly to facilitate a smooth operation and use of resources. I think you'll probably all know that as from now, you'll only receive two weeks of recordings. And if neither of these are returned, you'll not receive further recordings. But of course, if you're unwell or have a problem, please do ring us. That's 01905 767 766 and just leave a message for us. As you probably know, all our recordings are now available as podcasts via the Worcester Talking News website. And we have an extensive library from from which you can have uh, books at any point. Just get in touch if you'd like to avail yourself of that service. With regard to the obituaries, um, as a result of client feedback, we have now decided to put them at the end of the recording. So they haven't disappeared. That's where they now are, If should you want to listen to them. The service is free to users, but if you'd like to make a donation, it can be sent to Colin Chance House, Wilds Lane, Worcester, WR5 1DA. I've also been asked to flag up the... 16th annual charity golf day at Bewdley Pines Golf Club, which is taking place on Wednesday, the 22nd of May. Friends or family of our listeners who are interested in taking part should contact Jim McKeever on 07710-600-396 or the Winning Post Direct on 01905 for details on how to enter or for sponsorship opportunities. And the reason that uh, I'm telling you about this is that this um, Winning Post Charity Golf Day, they have nominated WNESB as their charity for this year. And finally, if you'd like to donate a gift for their prize draw for this golf day, please contact Jim McKeever as soon as possible so that it may be included in the full list of prizes in the golf day information. So moving on, I think we will now do the important telephone numbers, which Jane has a copy of. So if you'd like to read those out, Jane, that'd be great. Right. Um, Police Non-Emergency 101, Crime Stoppers 0800 555 111, Worcester Hub for Council Matters 01905 765 765. Worcester Live, which has details of what's on at the, at the Swan Theatre, 
Huntingdon Hall and Henry Sandon Hall. 01905-611-427 Malvern Theatres 01684-892277 Samaritans, now a free phone number, 116123 and here at Colin Chance House, 01905 767 766. Thank you, Jane. And I now have a well, some ideas for what's on over the next uh, week or two. And I'll start with ballet. So Stravinsky's Danse Concertante, I hope that accent's sufficiently good, and Ravel's Mother Goose Ballets are being performed at the Swan Theatre on Thursday the 9th of May at 7.30pm. Bradley Thatchuk conducts the English Symphony Orchestra and the Academy Theatre Arts dancers take to the stage. Tickets are £22, unless you're under 30, and you'll get in for £8, and under 18s are a fiver. To book tickets, it's telephone number 611-427. The following night, so that's Friday, May the 10th, the Swan Theatre plays host to a different sort of evening. Barry Steele and friends take to the stage to deliver the Roy Orbison story, a contemporary take on Orbison's legacy. This is apparently a musical journey in time as the cast produce a perfect combination of classic hits and contemporary genius. For details, again, it's 611-427. Meanwhile, at the Malvern Theatre from the 7th to the 11th of May, there's a production of Oscar Wilde's The Picture of Dorian Gray, a, I quote, fast-paced thriller that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Well, that's what the marketing blurb tells me. For more details, telephone number 01684 892 on Saturday, May the 11th, the politician Alan Johnson will be appearing at the Huntingdon Hall, 6.30 till 9. Inspired by his latest book, In My Life, Alan tells his personal story with the help of the music that has soundtracked his life. And something a little bit different, the race course opens again for the new season of racing on Thursday the 9th of May. So if you're into your horses, it's an afternoon fixture. Gates opening at 12pm for a two o'clock start. And finally, something for the future, but I thought it would be good to give advance warning of this, as I suspect it will be a popular event. Um, it was actually an article in the paper, so I'll give you a quick resume of what it says. Think of Elgar, and perhaps you'll think of his haunting cello concerto. And you might also think of Worcester, the city of his, city of his birth. A four-day music festival is set to celebrate one of Britain's greatest composers and Worcester native, Sir Edward Elgar, from May the 30th to June the 2nd, in and around the faithful city. A spokesman said, At the heart of this summer's Elgar Festival is the composer's evergreen cello concerto, performed by renowned soloist Raphael Wolfisch and the English Symphony Orchestra under Kenneth Woods, which is to be performed as part of a gala concert in Worcester Cathedral, to mark the centenary of the composer's final masterwork. Inaugurated last year as a two-day event and immediately gaining critics' pick status in The Guardian and The Times, this year's festival has now expanded to four days with the intention to champion Elgar to as wide an audience as possible. With the theme Elgar for Everyone, 
the ethos behind the event is to engage those of all ages and backgrounds in the music and legacy of Worcester's greatest son through an immersive and engaging schedule of festival events, which this year centres around the cello concerto. And this is the centenary of that cello concerto, Elgar's Lament for a Lost World. The spokesman said it was conceived during the dark years of the First World War as the composer, then 60, recuperated from a painful operation. It is sparse and concentrated, full of memorable themes. So I think that the tickets, I'm not sure if they've gone on sale, but for more details, you can call 01905 611 427. And that's from May the 30th to June the 2nd. So that's enough of my voice and all the Watsons. I shall hand over to Phil, who's going to read all the headlines and then move into the first headline story. Thank you, Pippa. We start back last Friday with my desperate wait for a life-saving transplant. Saturday, they let baby die inside me. Monday the 28th, jail for thug who left X in terror. Tuesday, zebra crossing to be axed. Wednesday, behind bars. And Thursday, sort out this traffic. So we start with uh, last Friday's, as I said, my desperate wait for a life-saving transplant. A teenager who has had a desperately long wait for a life-saving heart transplant is urging more people to consider organ donation. Anna Hadley, 14, collapsed during a PE lesson at Nunnery Wood High School before being diagnosed with a rare heart condition. The Worcester teen was placed on the heart transplant waiting list before undergoing a pioneering procedure weeks later to help protect her lungs. But nearly a year on, Anna is still waiting for a new heart. Dad, Andy Hadley, says she is in good spirits, but the longer she remains on the waiting list, the more at risk she is of a stroke or a cardiac arrest. While adult donor registration will be boosted by the much-publicised opt-out law starting in 2020, this law does not apply to under-18s, and the number of child donors has not increased in the last decade, he said. 38 children in the UK need heart transplants, with 177 more waiting for other organs, according to NHS figures. Mr Hadley said Anna, who has restrictive cardiomyopathy and long QT syndrome, wants parents to discuss organ donation, share their own wishes and agree their wishes for their children. He added, people have their reasons for not signing themselves or their children onto the donor register, including cultural and religious. That's fine. But the problem is most people end up having to make this sort of decision at the worst time when they're saying goodbye to their child in hospital. They, understandably, want to preserve the body rather than have it harvested for organs. It becomes an emotional decision rather than a logical and a moral one. They need to talk about it now. It needs a conversation, but it's a taboo subject. Eight, nine, ten-year-olds, they can make their own choices. They don't see death in the same way as adults. They just want to be a hero. In 2017-18, a total of 17 children died while waiting for an organ donor. On the other hand, there were 57 child donors in the same period whose donations made 200 transplants possible compared to 55 child donors in a year from 2013 to 2014. Anna's heart can be harvested for valves and so she has signed on to the register. The teenager was just the sixth paediatric heart patient in the UK to receive an 
atrial flow regulator, a device which keeps open a hole created between the upper chambers of her heart. An aspiring hockey player, Anna, who had just been picked to play for the county before her collapse in November 2017, and her till her transplant, she cannot undertake any strenuous competitive sport. She has been generally quite well and enjoyed a symptom-free period, said Mr Hadley, albeit under ongoing orders of no exercise from her cardiologists at Great Ormond Street Hospital, London. Not one to do anything by half, Anna now plans to cycle 212 kilometres over four days between May the 24th and May the 27th, the same distance from her home, uh, the same distance as her home is from the Great Ormond Street Hospital. When Mike Field, the owner of On Bike Electric Bikes in the Tithing, heard about the fundraiser, he offered his support by providing a new EMTB for her to use. Anthony Clarkson, Director of Organ Organ Donation and Transplantation for NHS Blood and Transplant, said, We are in awe of Anna's commitment to raising awareness of organ donation and money to help others and wish her the best of luck with her bike ride. It is wonderful to see her determination to keep achieving her goals and ambitions despite her desperately long wait for a transplant. Mr Clarkson added, sadly there are many children like Anna still waiting for the life-saving gift of an organ. Young patients waiting for a heart need an organ matched for size and power for a successful transplant, which means the organ needs to come from a child of a similar size or age. He said children in need of an urgent heart transplant will wait on average two and a half times as long as adults on the urgent waiting list. Only 48% of families supported donation for a relative aged under 18 in 2017 and 18, which compares to an average of 66 for families agreeing overall. Our team of specialist nurses for organ donation are working hard with hospitals to ensure that families are given the support that they need if they find themselves in a position where their child become an organ donor. Although it can be difficult to talk about organ donation and death, especially when it is about a child, we would urge everyone to think about organ donation, both for you and for your children, and to share your decision with family and friends. And this is from Saturday, April the 27th. They let my baby die inside me. A heartbroken mum says her unborn baby died at Worcester's Hospital because she was neglected for 14 hours while in labour. Natalie Duffy says that she was ignored at Worcestershire Royal Hospital despite begging for fluids which caused her to dehydrate. Miss Duffy, aged 35, added, My partner was begging doctors to give me something. I was receiving no fluids and was very dehydrated. I was hallucinating and I felt like there were bubbles in my stomach. I kept telling doctors I did not feel right, but they all ignored me. The only time someone came to help was when my daughter's heart stopped. Dehydration caused Miss Duffy to fall seriously ill and so doctors placed her in an induced coma. She was unconscious for 48 hours and claims the situation led to the death of her unborn child, Lainey. Miss Duffy said, The doctors failed to realise my organs were failing. I was put into a coma as I was left so long dehydrated. I almost died myself. I woke up from the coma and my baby had already died. She was wrapped up in hospital clothes beside me. 
My baby's heart stopped inside of me and I'm living in guilt as I couldn't save my daughter's life and it's eating me up inside. I don't want to live anymore. Miss Duffy claims that the doctors informed her that Laney would need a small amount of body tissue taken to sample for an autopsy to help determine the cause of her death. However, she claims that a full post-mortem examination was carried out instead, which the family only found out about when they discovered the scarring while dressing Laney. She added, I just wish we had had a bit of warning, as it came as a big shock when we were dressing her. She had scarring on her chest and the back of her head from where they did the autopsy. The family took Laney home for a month after leaving the hospital and kept her in a cuddle cot, which, kept, um, which allowed them to spend time with her before the funeral service on February the 14th. Miss Duffy said, I can still smell her on me. I carry a bag with all her things inside, her blanket, the outfit she wore at the hospital and her ashes, which I can't leave the house without. Everyone keeps telling me my baby is a superhero and she's died to raise awareness and help other babies. It's like I'm living a nightmare. We're in the dark. I feel absolutely lost and I feel answers. I need answers about what has happened. Miss Duffy, who has three other children and lives in Kidderminster, said the trauma has destroyed her family's life. The trust, which runs Worcestershire's Royal Hospital, has launched an investigation into the incident on January the 17th. Dr Sunil Kabadia, Chief Medical Officer at Worcestershire Acute Hospital's NHS Trust, said we would like to express our sincere, sincere condolences to Miss Duffy. While we are unable to discuss specific details relating to patient care for confidentiality reasons, we can confirm we are carrying out a full investigation into Miss Duffy's care. We're in contact with her and her family, and the results of the investigation will be shared in full with them. In all cases where a post-mortem is offered, parents are required to sign a consent form. And the headline for Monday the April the 29th, jail for thug who left X in terror. A convicted sex offender is now behind bars after chasing after his ex-partner and smashing up her house and car, leaving her terrified. Gregory Mosedale admitted two breaches of a restraining order and two counts of criminal damage when he appeared at Worcester Crown Court over video link from HMP Hewell. The 28-year-old dad of Millwood Close, Worcester, had already admitted the offences when he appeared before Judge Daniel Pierce Higgins, QC, on Friday. Amanda O'Mara, prosecuting, said Mosedale, who has been in custody since March the 20th, had been in an on-off relationship with his partner. However, she decided she didn't want him back in her life, ending their relationship in January this year. Miss O'Mara described how Mosedale's partner was driving along Liverpool Road in Ronxwood, Worcester, in her Vauxhall Corsa, with a child in the car, when another vehicle approached her head-on. Miss O'Mara said she felt terrified and phoned police on the way home. Although the defendant got out of the car, it was being driven by someone else and proceeded to follow her through a red light. Later, the defendant caused criminal damage to the windows of her home and car. A neighbour heard Mosedale shouting and swearing and a lock knife was left on the doorstep of the house. 
In a victim statement, his ex-partner said, I do not feel safe. <clears throat> Ms O'Mara referred to Mosdale's previous convictions, which she said included a sexual assault in 2011 and repeated breaches of the restraining order, which she described as a history of disobedience. There's a threat of violence and physical action afterwards. It's persistent and determined, said Miss O'Mara. Jason Aris, defending, said his client challenged the view that a child was in his partner's car at the time of the incident. While he's acted in anger by sending abusive messages and behaving in a reprehensible way, a lot of it is said in temper rather than being any meaningful threat in this case, said Mr Aris. He also said that Mosdale's ex-partner was compliant in some of the restraining order breaches and that her son was conceived with Mosdale during the order. Mr Aris asked the judge to follow the recommendation by the probation service to impose a community order. Judge Daniel Pierce Higgins QC said Mosdale had already been sentenced to 18 months in prison in March 2017 for breaches of the same restraining order. He said that the significant matter was not the breach itself, but how the defendant had behaved. Judge Pierce Higgins told Mosdale he had gone way beyond a community order sentence and added, I have no doubt immediate custody is the only way forward. The judge jailed him for 18 months. His time on remand would count towards his sentence. Mosdale can expect to serve half his sentence in custody and the other half in the community on licence. Tuesday's headline was Zebra Crossing to be Axed. An unpopular zebra crossing will be replaced with traffic lights before the end of the year, so says the County Council's Cabinet Member for Highways. Councillor Alan Amos yesterday revealed to the Worcester News that plans for the controlled pedestrian crossing on Pheasant Street near Asda are at the design stage and will be completed before 2020. This comes just weeks after the zebra crossing on Croft Road between the Hive and the Racecourse was replaced with traffic lights as part of a £3.2 million grant from the Department of Transport. The council hopes to improve congestion on the troublesome road, with the work also including the removal of a roundabout. Councillor Amos couldn't reveal at this point how much the Pheasant Street work would cost or where exactly the money has come from, whether it is part of the annual budget or in some form of a grant. However, he said it is part of the council's priority to deal with congestion across the county. Now we have got the Croft Road crossing done, we are moving on to the next one, he said. We are at the design stage. We've had a safety audit done so we know what is best for the crossing, what we can and can't do. Obviously, pedestrian safety is the number one priority. We have got to deal with the traffic issues. We have worked very hard behind the scenes to deal with this. It's going to be a new pedestrian crossing and it will hopefully improve the traffic flow. Earlier this week, we we featured city resident Richard Wyke, who said he refused to believe the council's promises regarding crossing improvements. Mr Wyke said a number of assurances had been made in recent years regarding several crossings in Worcester, including the Pheasant Street one. Earlier this month, John Fraser of the County Council's Highways Department had said changes to the crossing near the superstore are, quote, being considered as part of improvement plans for the area. As soon as these plans are confirmed later this year, we will be sharing the information with residents and businesses, he added. 
But Mr Wyke said he was told by numerous council representatives as long as 18 months ago that the ASDA crossing would be changed, potentially to traffic lights. I was told they had the funding now to improve traffic flow systems, including ASDA. It was all ready to happen, but nothing's ever happened. He said about three years ago the council had made similar promises and he believes it is lip service being used to appease residents. If the councillors drive through town and see the crossing, they will see the tailbacks blocking up the flow of traffic, morning, lunchtime, evening, Saturdays. It doesn't take anyone with a degree in logic to see that something needs to be done. Since the ASTA opened with the crossing, they said they would monitor it, but they've never bothered about it since. The footfall there is causing traffic jams. It could be solved by timed lights. It wasn't short-sighted when they put it in, but over the years it's becoming a problem because traffic is getting snarled up. And then you've got the idea, you've got the people who have no idea about the highway code and just cross without waiting. One day someone is going to get mowed down and a motorist will be blamed. And this is from Wednesday, yesterday. Behind bars, cricketer jailed for raping woman in teammate's bedroom. An arrogant cricketer who raped a woman he found dozing in his teammate's bedroom has been jailed for five years. Alex Hepburn, aged 23, was convicted after an attack he carried out during the first night of a sexual conquest game he helped to set up on a WhatsApp group. The Australian-born former Worcestershire all-rounder was said by the prosecution to have been fired up by the contest to sleep with the most women before carrying out the rape at his flat in Portland Street, Worcester, in April 2017. Jailing Hepburn at Hereford Crown Court on Tuesday, Judge Jim Tendall told the immature cricketer he and a former teammate had agreed to a pathetic sexist game to collect as many sexual encounters as possible. He added, You probably thought it was laddish behaviour at the time. In truth, it was foul sexism. It demeaned women and trivialised rape, a word you personally threw around lightly. Only now do you realise how serious rape is. A jury had found Hepburn guilty of oral rape at a retrial earlier this month but cleared him of a further count of rape relating to the same victim. The four-day trial at Worcestershire Crown Court heard that the woman wrongly thought she was having sex with Hepburn's then county teammate, Joe Clark, after meeting him at a nightclub. She told jurors she had consensual sex with England Lions Batman, batsman Mr Clark, who left his bedroom in the early hours to be sick in the bathroom where he passed out. Hepburn told the jurors he'd drunk the equivalent of 20 bottles of beer before he found the woman alone on a mattress at the flat he shared with Mr Clark. The judge told Hepburn, that night, Joe Clark did nothing wrong, nor did she. He added, I've no doubt at that stage you planned to go to bed on the mattress in Joe Clark's room. Then you realised a sleeping woman was there and you saw a chance and climbed onto the mattress rousing her. Judge Tyndall told Hepburn he had arrogantly believed his victim would consent. Addressing the cricketer, he said, You thought you were God's gift to women. You did see her at that moment as a piece of meat, not a woman entitled to respect. Sex is something people do together with that particular person at that particular time. 
Sex is never something a man does to a woman, arrogantly assuming consent in a relationship, let alone as you did. And as she said in evidence, that is rape and that is what you did. And in that moment, you scarred both your lives forever. His barrister, Michelle Healy, QC, said her client had expressed remorse. However, in what the judge called a brave victim impact statement, the woman Hepburn attacked described her ordeal as evil and a heinous crime. I can take my hat off to anyone who can hold down a healthy, happy relationship after being raped, she added. Describing the impact on her physical, emotional health, the court heard she now suffered panic attacks, anxiety and violent anger outbursts and had struggled to hold down a steady job. Following the sentencing, Detective Chief Inspector Ian Wall said, We welcome the sentence today and I hope it will offer some comfort to the victim who has shown great courage and strength in coming forward and in reporting this to us throughout this investigation and in giving evidence in court. I hope this conviction will provide reassurance to other victims of sexual offences, giving them the confidence that they will be believed and listened to by specially trained officers and that we will do everything to bring offenders to justice. And the headline for today, Thursday, May the 2nd, sort out this traffic. Yes, we're back to Worcester's traffic on this article. A city resident has urged council bosses to improve congestion near a busy retail park. But council bosses will only say they'll review it within two years. Roger Groves wants improvements to be made on Blackpool Road, where a number of key retailers are situated. The long-time city resident says it's time to look at improving traffic flow, particularly the stretch between Elgar Retail Park and the traffic lights by Bristol Street Motors. Mr Groves, who's lived in Draper's Close for 35 years, said, The traffic along Blackpool Road has increased since Little and Marks and Spencers have opened, so perhaps it is about time for a review of this part of Worcester where there is lots of shopping and industry companies, he said. Mr Grove said the bus stop by Lidl blocks traffic completely, the zebra crossing is not well planned, and the junctions with Cotswell Way and Mason's Drive are causing tailbacks at peak times. We've lived here, he said, since 1985 and have seen factories go and retail parks built. Elgar Retail Park came in the 80s, then Blackpool Retail Park, And then further down, there's the Bosch site. The changes are good for Worcester. And we didn't go against the little being built on the opposite corner, for example. We welcome it to encourage competition. But all over town, there's a lot of development where the infrastructure is just not good enough to support it. He said the mini roundabout opposite Blackpool Retail Park slows things up and is always busy with traffic. The crossing is right on the roundabout. You come straight off the roundabout and are on top of the crossing. Turning right out of Mason Drive can take forever. I don't know what the solution is. Putting another roundabout in is going to slow traffic even more. Mr Groves went on to say, Could they do anything to help with the traffic flow? They do all the improvements to the ones in the centre of town, but not out here. But people use this route every day. A spokesman from Worcestershire County Council Highways Department said, We regularly review our junctions and highway corridors. Blackpool Road, along with Rainbow Hill, 
Aswood Road and Bilford Road will be part of a review process within the next two years. Well, poor Mr Groves is going to have to wait a little longer. So that concludes the uh, headline stories. And now Phil will start some of the ordinary news stories. Yes, let's do that. This one's from Wednesday, yesterday that is, and it's headed jail for fantasist who dumped old-aged pensioner. A fantasist who claimed to be in the elite SBS Special Forces unit has been jailed for his part in a plot to dump a dementia-suffering American pensioner in rural England. Simon Hayes left 78-year-old Roger Curry with medical staff near Hereford Hospital on November 7, 2015, claiming he had found him face down in a lane. Prosecutors said Hayes, 53, of Somerset, had told a pack of lies about Mr Curry, but his motivations were still unclear. Described in court as a pathological liar, Hayes' actions and false witness statements led detectives on a wild goose chase, trying to work out where Mr Curry had come from and how he had got to the UK. Simon Davis, QC, prosecuting, said Hayes was contacted by best mate Kevin Curry, the victim's son, then living in California. They exchanged a series of texts and calls before Kevin Curry flew with his mother and father to London Gatwick in November 2015. On the 23rd, Kevin Curry and his mother flew to Denmark, but without his father. At Hayes' sentencing at Worcester Crown Court, Mr Davis said, The defendant was part of a plan to bring Roger from the US and dump him in Hereford, abandoning him so that he could receive care from local health care providers. It was clearly planned. At 4.20 on November the 5th, 2015, Hayes, dressed in a fake military uniform and putting on a US accent, took Mr Curry to Hereford bus station near the hospital, telling a nurse and later paramedics that he had found the older man in a country lane. Hayes left Mr Curry with medics, refusing to give contact details because he said he was working with the SAS at their nearby camp. Mr Davis said Hayes then joined Kevin Curry and his mother on a holiday to France and Copenhagen. Back in Hereford, the mystery of Mr Curry's identity, dubbed Creddon Hill Man after the location where he was found, triggered an international police appeal for information, even involving the FBI, before the truth came out. Police began to suspect he had been deliberately dumped, and suspicion even fell on the nurse Hayes had initially spoken to at the bus station. By March 2016, Roger Curry, who had an autistic spectrum disorder and Alzheimer's, told nurses his name. Inquiries led authorities to ring Kevin Curry's address in Whittier, California, but he claimed that no one called Roger lived there. The police got a break when Hayes, for reasons which are still a mystery, called West Mercia Police, identifying himself as the man who handed the victim to medics. Jailing Hayes for two and a half years, Judge Daniel Pierce Higgins, QC, said there's no certainty that had he not done that, he'd ever have been found. But Hayes again lied, claiming that he and a Canadian Army serviceman had found Mr Curry, that he lived in Los Angeles, and that he'd been attending a course at the SAS base. The court heard Hayes had spent some time in the US, but was deported in January 2013 after a drink-driving conviction. Detectives arrested Hayes, who claimed he was a qualified physiotherapist, and had met Sir Frank Williams, David Coulthard, and also trained racing drivers. The prosecutor said 
He said he'd been in the SBS and had been in Hereford for a short while, but he was unable to answer a simple question that any serviceman would know. What's your army number? Hayes admitted perverting the course of justice and a separate case of fraud in relation to a false character reference. Hayes' barrister, Ashley Hendren, told the court it is possible he believes his own fantasy. After Hayes was deported from the US, he sent unsuccessful visa applications between 2014 and 16. These were supported by a fake reference claiming to be from British Major General Francis Buster Howes. Major General Howes told police he'd never heard of Hayes. The victim was cared for by the NHS, while a public appeal and criminal investigation continued, costing up to £20,000. He was safely returned to the US in 2016. Mr Davis said Mr Curry's son is under investigation in the US for elder abuse, fraud and kidnapping. Uh, Election 2019 and Labour expects in St John's. It's a five-way battle in St John's as Labour looks to maintain its grip on the ward. It's hard to see anything but victory for Labour in St John's where voters have been consistently electing that party's councillor for more than a decade now. St John's, one of the five cities council's three-member wards, has remained firmly loyal to Labour since 2008. And despite the Conservatives remaining the closest challenger to Labour and performing well in surrounding wards, especially Bedwardine and St Clement, anything other than a victory for Labour would come as a shock. With all three councillors holding seats in St John's for a number of years now, it's the turn of Councillor Richard Udall, who also represents an area as a county councillor, to seek re-election, having gained a majority of 544 votes four years ago. The other two Labour councillors have all been re-elected with sizeable majorities. Councillor Matt Lamb, who was re-elected with a majority of 463 last year, and Councillor Chris Cawthorn, who was re-elected 568 votes ahead of the Conservatives in 2016. Chris Rymel is standing for the Conservatives, having stood at Rainbow Hill in 2018 when he lost out to Labour's Tom Collins. And he's a Conservative and he says, Worcester has been my home for the last 25 years and I'm proud to be part of our great city. It's where my wife and I work and where my daughter went to school. I'm a local businessman with much of my life in international trade working alongside diverse groups to come together to address problems and make make a difference. And now I want to make a difference in St John and ensure your needs are fairly represented. The future of St John's Library, empty shops and the redevelopment of the High Street, congestion in and around the city, the lack of a completed ring road and with the village in the city being right on the doorstep of ever-expanding University of Worcester, the rise in student accommodation and houses in multiple occupation, HMOs, all remain wager issues. Owen Cleary, current chairman of UKIP in Worcester, also stands for the first time in St John's, having come third in Bedwardine in 2015, and having twice failed in Warnden to grab a seat in the Guildhall. And he says, I've lived in Worcester for many years, but I'm now tired of the way that the area west of the river is neglected. 
The university needs funding, but St John's is so much more than just that. Infrastructure investment is needed as a priority in the St John's shopping area to ensure it's not just a rat run for those passing through. Sarah Dukes is also standing for the Green Party in St John's for the first time, and she says climate breakdown is the pressing issue of our time, and the Greens are the only party committed to fixing the future of our planet. This is a chance to secure a bigger voice for the environment and social justice. I live in Worcester with my husband and two children since 19, since 2005, and I'm an English teacher and eco coordinator at a Malvern High School. Socialist candidate Mark Davies returns to contest the seat again, having done so in the last six elections, and he says the Socialist Party wants the council to adopt a legal no cuts budget, freezing council tax, and making prudential use. Of reserves, linking up with other authorities to campaign for restoration of government funding and calls on labour leaders to pledge to reimburse reserves spent or borrowing undertaken, defending local communities in this way. Right, and、uh, this is a sort of good news story, I think. Ed Sevenstone weight loss can inspire other men. And it's accompanied by two wonderful before and after pictures, which you really wouldn't recognise.、Uh, the sa- it was it was the same lad because he has changed extraordinarily、um, between being seven stone overweight and now not being seven stone overweight. Anyway, here we go. Here's the story: A young man who has lost almost seven stone in a year has urged other men not to ignore their weight problems. Ed Walker, aged 24, has shed the weight since joining the Holt Heath Slimming World group in May last year. The Martley resident said, "Joining Slimming World has been one of the best things I've ever done. Before, I thought slimming groups were just for women and not my thing at all. But after struggling with everyday things, I decided I had nothing to lose by giving it a try. We have a good laugh, as well as sharing challenges, our plans for overcoming them, ideas for getting fit and active, and plenty of recipes." Just by making a few small changes to the way my favourite meals are cooked, I can ensure they're still filling and full of flavour, and also good for my waistline. The leader of the group has called on obese men to not be shy about dealing with the problem. Sarah Eskdale, who runs the Slimming World group in Holt Heath, said, "Weight problems are common among both men and women, but figures show that men typically keep weight worries to themselves for as long as six years." The good news, though, is that more and more men are becoming more open to the idea of getting support, and there are now more than sixty thousand men using Slimming World groups around the country. With our generous food-optimizing eating plan, it means it's possible to satisfy even the biggest of appetites. And whether it's steak and home-baked chips, a Sunday roast, or a spicy curry, you can still enjoy all of your favourite foods. As they lose weight and gain confidence, they're supported and rewarded to get more active if they want to. Miss Eskdale said, "And Slimming World at Holt Heath is open to new members, and the group meets every Wednesday at 7 p.m. or Thursday at 9:30 at Holt Heath Village Hall." You'd actually think that was a bit of an advertisement, wouldn't you, for Slimming World? But I promise you, it's an it's an actual article.、Um, rather nice one. It does sounds very healthy. Top lineup for show. 
BBC presenter Adam Henson is among the stars set to grace the Royal Three Counties show in Malvern this year. Country Files Adam will be joined by his farmyard friends at the annual celebration of all things countryside. Diana Walton, spokeswoman for the event, said the show is a wonderful celebration of fine food, farming and the countryside that the whole family can enjoy. We've got something in store for everyone, from the hugely popular Adam and his Cotswold Farm Park, at where you can meet your farmyard friends as well as Adam, to the magnificent champion livestock in the Grand Parade and Britain's best-loved farmers. There will be a focus on the host county of Herefordshire this year and the opportunity to sample cider and strawberries. Some of, the county's, some of the country's finest livestock will compete for the title of Best in Show, with thousands of entries expected, while family entertainment will include dog agility and duck herding. Youngsters will be able to meet lots of cute and cuddly creatures, ranging from rabbits, alpacas and goats, to chickens, ducks, geese and turkeys. The Red Devils display team will put on a demonstration and a spokesman said, we look forward to showing our skills at the event and entertaining the public on what is set to be a wonderful day. The Gardening Hub returns for its second year with stage host, local gardening expert Reg Moore. Set at the foot of the Malvern Hills, the show is expected to attract more than 90,000 visitors over the course of the weekend. The show will take place from Friday, June 14th until Sunday, June 16th. Tickets are on sale, with under-16s going free for the first time ever this year. See royal3counties.co.uk or call 0844-811-0050 for more. And this is from a pub spy, who's obviously got someone who goes around the pubs. It must be a good, good job, that. The pub spy made a three-mile trip out to Grimley, on his latest venture to find a warm welcome and a relaxed atmosphere awaiting at the Camp House Inn. When I set off for this week's visit with my trusty sat-nav close to hand, it took a while to find the pub to be reviewed. I took a couple of wrong turnings, which took me quite some distance from the venue, as I travelled through the heartland of the countryside, and when I finally arrived at the Camp House Inn Grimley, just before noon, I was greeted by a family of geese, who honked at my intrusion into their peace and quiet. As soon as the door was unlocked, I walked through the rather low door frame of the 16th century inn. I guess customers were smaller then. Inside was cosy, a real country pub. Real ales were on tap, and a friendly bar lady who had a strong black country accent took my order. She told me she'd worked at the pub for 20 years and said she enjoys the job very much. Her positive disposition was clear to see. She explained about the resident ghost, and although she had not seen it, other staff members and customers have heard strange noises. Spooky. The menu offered a reasonable selection of choices, from traditional pub grub to curry. I opted for the lamb rogan josh with nan bread, rice, and is generally the rule in the UK a slice of sweet pepper on top for garnish. The food arrived quickly, along with my pint of cola. The price was a little over £10, great value. The food portion was of good size and the curry well seasoned, and I certainly had no room for dessert. And it was really nice not to be asked while I had a mouthful of food as to whether I was enjoying my meal, which has happened too many times before in others' establishments. 
As it was a weekday lunchtime, it was quiet, except for three men who appeared to be regulars, and they all talked about the previous weekend being very busy indeed. The entertainment is provided by conversation. What I liked about the atmosphere was the lack of background music, often found in high street chain pubs. I checked out the toilets, which were pristine, like the cleanliness of the rest of the pub. The beer garden backs onto the seven, and although I did not venture outside, it looked wonderful. I can imagine sitting there with a real ale to hand or a glass of wine washing the river past me during a warm summer day. Bliss. Overall impressions. For somewhere to come and relax, to get away from it all, Pub Spy gives it a high mark for the food, staff and decor. However, as it requires a drive from Worcester, if alcohol was to be consumed, it would need a taxi trip home or a nominated driver. Not ideal when Worcester has so many pubs. But there was a good range of soft drinks available, available from squash to fizzy beverages. And he's got these scores on the side. Atmosphere, 9 out of 10. Decor, 6 out of 10. Staff, 9 out of 10. Drink, 7 out of 10. Food, 8 out of 10. Prices, 7 out of 10. Overall, 7 out of 10. And this is a a good news story about, um, well, the headline is Party Unites Neighbours. A community is getting ready to repeat a street party which has brought them closer together. Residents of Hill Avenue in Worcester are preparing to celebrate the the great get-together, which sees street parties up and down the country, held in memory of Joe Cox, an MP who was murdered in 2016. This will be the third time Hill Avenue residents have got their bunting, tables and chairs out for the Jubilee-style event. Hannah Clark organised the first great get-together on the street. Mrs Clark said, We'd lived on the road probably a year. I wanted to find a way of bringing the community together and to meet my neighbours. In April 2016, Mrs Clark, who lives with her husband and her son, sent letters to her neighbours inviting them round for a barbecue suggesting that if they wanted to help, they get in touch. They had a meeting and had the streets first get-together in 2016. The street parties have been much loved by the neighbours and it certainly had an impact on people's confidence in speaking to our neighbours, she said. We have a Facebook group which has enabled us as a community to help and support each other. There's a lot of sharing. Someone's borrowed a fascinator for a wedding. Someone's been given a radio. And there's a lot of sharing of information and support, Mrs Clark said. The Hill Avenue get-together will be held this year on Saturday, June the 29th. Mrs Clark said business is the reason most people don't speak to their neighbours. It wasn't that people were unfriendly, it was just that people didn't necessarily have a reason or space to interact, and the party gave people a reason. To organise a get-together, visit greatgettogether.org.au Sorry, I'll read that again. Greatgettogether.org slash get dash back dash together slash. Over to you, Phil. (laughs) Today's newspaper's got an article um, headed Polish Flying Aces to be Honoured. This weekend will be Spitfire Saturday in Worcester when a full-size replica of a supermarine model takes centre stage in Cathedral Plaza along with the recovered remains of a Polish-flown Spitfire which caught fire and crashed near Malvern in May 1941. 
These exhibits will be just part of a special Polish Heritage Day to celebrate the history of Polish communities in Worcester and pay tribute to the Polish pilots who flew and died with the RAF during the Battle of Britain. As well as the military hardware, there will be a 22-foot-long street barbecue of Polish food, a display of classic Polish cars, events and activities for children, and a live auction of historic items linked to the Second World War and the Battle of Britain. Belgian TV will be there, and visitors will be able to meet and speak with event organisers and sponsors in a reception area. The day is to be opened by Worcester's Mayor, Councillor Jabba Riaz, and is being supported, uh, supported rather, by Worcestershire's Spitfire expert and author, Dilip Sarka. It is being coordinated by Tom Wisniewski, Director of Worcestershire's Polish Association and former member of the Polish Army Special Forces. The Spitfire on display in Worcester will be MK805, which has taken a team of enthusiasts led by Terry Arlo more than 25 years to restore, and they used copies of the original Spitfire drawings and around 75% of the original parts. It was first built by Vickers Armstrong at its Castle Bromwich Works in March 1944 and entered service in July 1944 with 64 Fighter Squadron. However, on September 27th, after carrying out mission, uh, a mission escorting Halifax bombers bombing the oil plant at Bottrop in Germany, its engine seized up over the North Sea, having apparently collected some flak while over the target. Pilot Lieutenant Anthony Cooper was able to glide back into Belgium and land in a ploughed field, four miles inside the Allied lines at Merbecker, unhurt. Eventually, MK805 was collected and returned to England, where it was made airworthy again, and after a period of time put back into service, this time in the Italian theatre of war. However, MK805 never flew again on an operational sortie and retired after the conflict to a plinth on which it guarded the entrance of an Italian firing range at Nacuno. There it was later discovered by a group of enthusiasts and, after thousands of hours of patient and dedicated engineering, has been completely restored. Parts of the Spitfire, which crashed near Malvern, will be on display at the Old Palace, Deansway, during Spitfire Saturday. The pilot was Flying Officer Franek Surma of 308 City of Krakow Squadron, who had bailed out of Spitfire R6644 over Madrasfield, owing to an engine fire. The team located the crash site, interviewed eyewitnesses and confirmed that Surma, an ace, was shot down over the French coast six months later and remained missing. Dilip Sarka, a founding member of MST and author of The Invisible Thread, A Spitfire's Tale, which recounts the Surma and R6644 story, explained, We decided because Surma was missing it would be appropriate to remember him through a, through a small memorial cairn at the roadside. In September 1987, following months of publicity, the excavation took place at a public event organised to raise money for the RAF Benevolent Fund. Thousands of people attended, and that afternoon, Polish Battle of Britain pilots, squadron leader Gandhi Dobrinski, DFC, and Ludwig Martel, unveiled our memorial, which remains the only such tribute to an individual Polish fighter pilot in the UK. The following year, our exhibition, telling the story of Surma and R6644, opened at Tudor House Museum, Worcester, attracting 10,000 visitors in just three months. Thereafter, this became a travelling exhibition, Spitfire, enjoyed by countless people nationwide. 
And now for something completely different, as they say. Jealous woman burst lover's eardrum in a row. A jealous woman assaulted her lover with hairspray and ruptured her eardrum in a drunken rage. Sapphire Harmon attacked her now ex-partner, Chloe Allen, after the defendant has demanded to see her mobile phone suspecting Miss Allen of cheating. The 24-year-old supermarket line manager of High Street Pershaw admitted assault by beating when she appeared at Worcester Magistrates Court following the attack on April the 4th this year. The court heard that the couple had been in a relationship for two years and moved in together at the Pershaw address in October 2017. Nicola Critchie, um, prosecuting, said in the early hours of April 4, the defendant and Miss Allen returned home having been out drinking. They were celebrating a family occasion in Pershaw Town Centre. When they got back to their home address, Miss Allen received a text message from a female friend. She says the defendant was not happy with this and she became very jealous and demanded to see her phone. An argument ensued between the two of them. Miss Allen refused to hand the phone over. She had it behind her back. Describing the assault, Miss Ritchie said, Miss Allen says the defendant proceeded to then slap her across the face and punch her multiple times with a closed fist to her head and arms. And she then picked up a can of hairspray and sprayed it into her face and onto the top of her head. And Miss Allen put her hands over her head to hide her face from the spray. The defendant continued to attack Miss Allen, grabbing her arm and biting her on the thumb. The court heard Miss Allen bit the defendant on the lower left arm to get her to loosen her grip and ran down the stairs. However, she was caught by Harmon near the front door and shoved into a dressing table in the hallway, causing bruising to the small of her back. Miss Allen then went to a friend's house and police were called. The injuries to Miss Allen included pain to the top of her head lumps near the crown of her head and marks on the right upper arm. She also reported difficulty hearing out of her right ear, which had been bleeding, and in a subsequent statement, Miss Allen said she'd been to see her GP, who told her she was suffering from a ruptured eardrum and concussion. She was also sick as a result of the incident. In a victim personal statement, Miss Allen said she was nervous about seeing Sapphire again, as I'm frightened of her and she was worried about the damage to her hearing in the long term. Harmon was of previous good character and told a probation officer she accepted the salt but denied spraying Miss Allen with hairspray or biting her thumb. When her ex-partner refused to hand over her mobile phone, she thought she was potentially cheating on her. Elaine Atkinson, defending, described the relationship between the women as volatile and said there have been arguments and a lot of jealousy on both sides. This lady has been assaulted quite substantially by the injured party in the past and it's an odd case in that when the lady was taken into custody she had a very, very nasty injury on her arm which was a bite mark but she did accept that she instigated the whole incident and she started it because she was jealous and both had been out drinking. The solicitor said it was irony that Miss Allen returned later that night to the defendant's address. Magistrates handed out a 12-month community order to include 20 rehabilitation activity days to help Harmon with anger management relationship issues and her drinking. 
The order will also include 50 hours of unpaid work and a payment of £50 in compensation to the victim. Harmon was also ordered to pay an £85 victim surcharge and £135 costs. A restraining order was made for nine months, which prevents Harmon from having any contact directly or indirectly with the victim or going near her home in Hillview, Defford. Parkway to mean faster train links. The chief executive of Network Rail will be the guest speaker when the Cotswold Line Promotion Group holds its annual general meeting. Andrew Haynes, OBE, will be talking about plans to upgrade the service on the Cotswold Line through Malvern, Worcester, Pershore and Evesham, as well as an update on the delayed Worcestershire Parkway project. The meeting will take place at the WI Hall Morton on Saturday, May the 11th at 10.30am. Representatives from train operating companies Great Western Railway and West Midlands Trains have also been invited to answer questions. Trains should be departing from Worcestershire Parkway Station by December, the County Council revealed earlier this year. The finish line for the new multi-million pound railway station on the edge of the city had been the subject of speculation for months and a definitive answer on when it would open was not given until February. Councillors originally said the station would be built by early 2019 but is now not expected to be completed until the summer. Nathan Campbell, director at the council's rail consultant SLC Rail, blamed the delay on unexpected work that was needed to an embankment supporting the line. The station has been built where the Cotswold Line, which links Worcestershire stations with Oxford and London, crosses the line linking Cheltenham and Birmingham. In the last eight months, a pedestrian bridge providing access to the platforms has been put in place. A new roundabout has been installed at the entrance to the station and work has continued to complete the station's 500-space car park. According to draft plans by GWR, the opening of the parkway will see significant improvements in services, with several trains travelling between Hereford and Paddington in under three hours and some services linking Paddington and Shrub Hill in under two hours. Bring it on. We like the sound of that, don't we? Issues not staff's fault, today's newspaper tells us. A cancer patient has praised hospital staff after she was giving a life-saving operation just seven weeks after first going to her GP. Lorraine James said Worcestershire Royal Hospital staff are worth their weight in gold and work in almost impossible circumstances due to funding cuts and a growing population. The 73-year-old who lives off St Martin's Quarter said she saw firsthand the bed shortage issues, with two patients waiting five hours for their operations to start before being sent home without them happening. She spoke out after the hospital came under fire after failing to meet expected treatment waiting times. There are problems, especially with beds, but it's not the staff's fault, it's the funding, she told the Worcester News. The ward I was in, there were only two beds. I was in one, and the other had people coming and going. The staff are rushed off their feet, but they were all brilliant. They just need to have the beds or the equipment. Mrs James went to Spring Garden Surgery on February the 19th before having CT scans and a biopsy and being diagnosed with cancer of the womb. She then had a full pre-op on April the 5th and a full hysterectomy operation on April the 10th before going home on April the 12th. 
She said, I can remember the old hospital in Castle Street. There weren't any of the problems there. They shouldn't be closing down hospitals and expecting others to take the burden. Figures from last year's annual report show Worcester Acute Hospitals NHS Trust failed to meet expected cancer treatment start dates of 62 days on 61.5% of the time. This places the trust as low as 126th out of 131 trusts across the country. A Freedom of Information request showed that the target was hit in just 53.9% of cases during the 12 months of 2018. We reported on Monday how, pen- how Pershaw pensioner Art Lavelle was forced to pay for a private biopsy costing £1,700 after being told that he would be waiting three months on the NHS. And in January, we reported how the trust was having to move patients from Worcester to Warwick Hospital due to a period of exceptionally high demand for beds. A trust spokesman said staff would be informed of Mrs James's praise. And here's something on a, a very English Civil War character. Unfortunately, the um, the talk that Major General Sir, Hen- Sir Edward Massey, um, about Sir Edward Massey, being given by Richard Graham MP for Gloucester, is taking place tonight, so we've missed that one. A talk <coughs> excuse me, about one of the English Civil War's most fascinating characters is to take place in Worcester. Major General Sir Edward Massey was the parliamentary governor of Gloucester when the city was besieged by Charles I and his royalist army in 1643. Yet he turned up in the royalist army of Charles II at the Battle of Worcester in 1651. Mr Graham, who gave the talk today, is an expert on Massey who was wounded in the Battle of Worcester skirmish at Upton-upon-Severn which explains the title of his talk, Hero, Traitor or Survivor. This Massey first fought in the Dutch army against the armies of Philip III of Spain, who ruled the Spanish Netherlands, and in 1639 appeared as a captain of pioneers in the army raised by Charles I of England to fight against the Scots. At the outbreak of the Civil War, he was with the king at York, but soon joined the parliamentary army. As a lieutenant colonel under the Earl of Stamford, Massey became deputy governor of Gloucester and then governor early in 1643. He conducted minor operations against numerous small bodies of royalists and marshaled the defence of Gloucester against the king's main army in August 1643 with great steadiness and ability, receiving the thanks of Parliament and a grant of £1,000 for his services. I wonder how much that's worth nowadays. After falling out with the parliamentarians, Massey fled England in June 1647 and escaped to Holland. From there, he openly took the side of the Royalists and accompanied Charles II to Scotland. He fought against Cromwell's army at the Bridge of Stirling and in Bekeithling and commanded the advance guard of the Royalist army in the invasion of England in 1651. It was hoped that Massey's influence would win over the towns of the Seven Valley to the cause of the king, and the march of the army on Worcester was partly inspired by this expectation. In the ensuing battle, he was seriously wounded, and when Massey realised his wounds were dangerously slowing Charles II down during his escape, he persuaded Charles to continue without him, although the king was reluctant to leave him. 
Massey was arrested and imprisoned in the Tower of London, but he escaped to Holland. He later returned to England and in 1661 was re-elected MP for Gloucester in the Cavalier Parliament. The rest of his life was spent on political, military and administrative business. He was unmarried and died in 1674 in Ireland, where he'd been granted the manor of Abbey Lee. Pavilion moving to museum. Work has begun to dismantle and move an historic pavilion at the original home of Worcestershire County Cricket Club. The restoration will see the ornate 19th century pavilion dismantled and moved to Avoncroft Museum of Historic Buildings near Bromsgrove. This is part of work to bring the historic Cinderella Sports Ground back into use. Cinderella Sports Sports Ground played host to a 20-year-old W.G. Grace, as well as the first Australian touring side in 1878. Andrew Round, director of place at Worcester City Council, said, I'm delighted that we found a way of preserving this important building, which played a significant part in establishing Worcestershire's proud history of cricketing excellence. The Bramsford Road site later became the works ground for the city's Cinderella shoe factory, before being taken over by Kay's catalogues. Once renowned for the quality of its cricket pitch, it had stood empty and unmaintained since the company closed in 2007. Nick Sturgis, head of collections and interpretation at Avoncroft Museum of Historic Buildings in Stoke Heath in Bromsgrove, said... Avoncroft Museum of Historic Buildings is dedicated to retaining, rescuing and reconstructing buildings that have played an important role in Midlands history. The Cinderella Cinderella Pavilion will be a significant addition to more than 30 buildings that have already been rescued at our Open Air Museum. The council is jointly refurbishing the sports ground with Heart of Worcestershire College, which will be taking on responsibility for the site under a sub-lease. Nicky Williams, Deputy CEO and Vice-Principal of HOW, that's Heart of Worcestershire College, said, The revived and restored Cinderella sports ground will become an important new sports facility for our students and will also be available to local sports clubs. Funding for the project has come from the City Council, the College, Sport England and Wales Cricket Board and a private donor, as well as from developers. Driver crashed into police car during chase is our next story. A dangerous drink driver who crashed into a police car and flouted a driving ban is now behind bars. Nathan Palmer broke the speed limit, ignored no-entry signs and crashed into a marked police car during the short chase in Evesham. The 28-year-old admitted dangerous driving, driving while disqualified, drink driving, driving without insurance, when he appeared at Worcester Crown Court on Wednesday. The court heard how Palmer of Avon Street, Evesham, was driving a Fiat van, which police believed may be stolen, towards Evesham at around 11pm on January 24th this year. Michael Conry, prosecuting, said the defendant turned into Tesco in the town and stopped. He said officers started to get out of the car. The defendant suddenly drove off, striking the front near side of the marked police car. From there, he drove along Worcester Road in Evesham, driving at 40 miles an hour in a 30-mile-an-hour road limit, driving on two occasions through no entry signs. 
When arrested, the lowest of the two alcohol readings was 54 of alcohol in 100 millilitres of breath, above the legal limit of 35. Mr Conry added, The defendant in interview admitted he had had a couple of drinks and also knew he was disqualified. He panicked when he saw police and tried to get away. He disputed that he was exceeding the speed limit. Mr Conry described him as having a bad driving record, appearing first before the court in 2012 for aggravated vehicle taking, for which he received a 14-week prison sentence, suspended for 18 months. There was then a gap of five years until he was convicted in 2017 of driving with excess alcohol and was disqualified from driving for three years. He was jailed at the end of 2017 for drink driving and driving without insurance. He also has a conviction for failing to provide a specimen of breath for analysis. Christopher Loach for Palmer said the defendant realises the seriousness of his position and how badly he has let himself down. He said his client was realistic about the prospect of an immediate custodial sentence and had pleaded guilty on the first occasion before Crown Court. The judge agreed he should be given full credit for his plea. Mr Loach said there were aggravating features in his client's history but stressed that the aggravated vehicle-taking matter had involved his mother's car rather than an unknown third party. He told the court his client had been working as a builder at the time of the most recent offences and he had had the opportunity to take the van, a works vehicle, used by his works partner. Mr Lote said Palmer had been celebrating his girlfriend getting a job and foolishly took the van and had been followed for an exceptionally short distance by police. Judge Jim Tyndall said, You are a young man who seems unable to stop yourself from driving despite having committed a number of increasingly serious driving offences in your young life. Palmer was jailed for 12 months and banned from driving for five years. This ban was extended by six months so that it will begin when he is released from prison. Uh, this is um, labelled child abuse of teacher, which really should, I think, be child abuse by teacher. A former teacher admitted sexually abusing three young boys as more potential victims came forward. Paul Stevens, former housemaster at Abberley Hall School near Worcester, changed many of his pleas to guilty just a day after his trial began at Worcester Crown Court. The jury had already watched video interviews from the first victim, now an adult, about the abuse he suffered in the early 1980s. He was due to give evidence directly before the victim's, the, the, the defendant's change of heart. Following discussions between barristers, Stevens was brought back to court to face the 29 counts, which ran between January the 1st 1983 and March the 22nd 1991. He admitted five counts of indecency with a child and ten indecent assaults against boys. The abuse included masturbation using a shampoo bottle to carry out a sex act, sexual touching and oral sex and some of the counts reflected multiple incidents. One of the victims died in 2010. After Stevens admitted the offences, Judge Andrew Lockhart, QC, directed the guilty the jury, sorry, return unanimous guilty verdicts on those accounts. The remaining fourteen counts will lie on file. The judge adjourned the case so victim personal statements and a report could be prepared. Judge Lockhart said it seems other men in the interim have come forward 
and have complained about con- your conduct towards them. The judge said he did not want to sentence Stephen's piecemeal, but for the overall picture, including any further charges the Crown may bring. Defence barrister Jason Aris raised the question of bail, but Judge Lockhart said, He's going to receive a very significant custodial sentence and it will start today. Mr Aris asked that Stevens be given time to get his effects in order, but was told by the judge, No, I'm sorry, I consider the right of bail is not automatic after a conviction. Secondly, I consider, from what I've heard, he's likely to commit further offences while on bail. Stevens will appear again before Judge Lockhart, wherever he's sitting on July the 5th. After the case, Detective Inspector Mark Waters from West Mercia Police said, Paul Stevens held a position of trust as a teacher, a position he abused in the worst possible way by preying on vulnerable children. I'd like to pay tribute to the victims who came forward and gave evidence against him. Thanks to their bravery, he's now been convicted of his appalling crimes and will face justice for his actions. And hopefully, this will now give them some sense of closure. Thank you both. And that wraps up the general news items for this week. But the sports stories are a bit thin on the ground. So I've included a little piece by Dave Bradley as a sort of link between news and sport. And for those who may not know, Dave Bradley is probably better known as one of BBC Hereford and Worcester Radio's presenters. But he also does a lot of football and cricket reporting for them. And this was a small piece that he wrote whilst away on a um, cricket match, whilst away, sorry, commentating on a cricket match at Northampton. So he writes, The town of Northampton was once the shoemaking capital of England. Hence the nickname of the Northampton Town Football Club is the Cobblers. As we often say on my Saturday morning show, there's not many people know that, although I suspect quite a few might. I write this from Northampton, where I was covering the cricket at the end of the week, and it set me to thinking about other towns once known for their manufacturing. Luton was famous for making hats, hence the football club of the Hatters. Reading the Biscuitmen, after Huntley and Palmer's factory in the town. Sheffield United the Blades because of the steel industry. And one of my favourites are Bristol Rovers, known as the Gas, as they used to play next to the Gasworks. There are many more, but sadly a lot of the trades that they were named after are no longer prevalent in those towns and cities. Stoke City are the Potters, but only recently another China works in Stoke has announced its closure. Worcester, of course, was once the glove-making centre of the country and it reached its peak between 1719 1820 when 150 manufacturers of gloves employed more than 30,000 people in and around Worcester. At this time, nearly half of all glovers in Britain were based in and around the city of Worcester. I had to look that up, by the way. But as far as I know, there are no companies making gloves in Worcester now. Well... I'd like to add something to that. Why isn't Worcester football team called the Glovers or even Worcester Warriors known as Worcester Glovers? I think there's a competition here, isn't there? That's a great question. Yeah. Absolutely. Anyway, for proper sport, I shall hand you over to Phil. Right. Dave Bradley was at New Road on Sunday. He was doing the PA there. I hope he was inside because it was mightily cold sitting outside, I can tell you. 
Uh, we lost anyway. Defeated head coach Alan, uh, Alex Gidman, I beg his pardon, argued Worcestershire had succumbed to a Warwickshire side that had played extremely well on Derby Day. The Rapids lost by 34 runs in the Royal London One Day Cup on Sunday with Sam Hain, that's a Warwickshire player, rattling off an unbeaten 1-6-1 for the visitors. Hain understandably came in for praise from Gidman, who also highlighted opposing captain Jeetan Patel for his steadying influence when the chips were down. The lads will feel they've just missed an opportunity to get another win, said Gidman. Credit to Sam Hain, that really was a genuinely good innings and they managed to wrestle back momentum well after our good start. I'm all for learning how we can get better, but at the same time, you've sometimes got to accept that someone or a team has played extremely well and that innings was very good and got them what to what, in our opinion, was an overpass score. Warwickshire took a bit of a risk and we didn't quite have the skill set today to get over that and over the line. Hayne, whose tally was a career-best list-A score, said, I did enjoy it. I've been a little light of runs in the one-day stuff so far, so I tried to put on a bit of a performance for the boys and for the team, and it was lovely to put the boys in a decent position. The wicket was a little bit tacky. There was a bit of moisture underneath, so I found it hard to initially put pressure back on the bowlers. You know with Worcestershire that they're going to come hard when they bat, but it was up to us to hold their skills and hold our nerve. Good on the lads for getting the job done, and we will take that momentum into the next game. And this is Worcester Warriors 27, Gloucester 20. Full marks to the players, says Boss Solomons. Director of Rugby, Alan Solomons, gave his players full marks for after holding their nerve to steer Worcester Warriors to safety in the Gallagher Premiership. Prior to their clash with Sale Sharks two weeks ago, Warriors were just three points above the relegation zone and at real risk of the dreaded drop. But Worcester responded by putting five tries past Sale in a 39-17 victory before defeating third-place Gloucester 27-20 at six ways on Sunday. The back-to-back triumphs retained Worcester's Warriors' place in the top flight and left bottom club Newcastle Falcons staring down the barrel at relegation to the championship. The players must take enormous credit, says Solomons, whose side are 11 points clear of Falcons. I think our approach has been correct, where we focused on getting the performances out of the team, and I do believe we've got a quality team And when we perform well, we give ourselves every prospect of getting the right result. I think that's aided and abetted the situation. But having said that, four marks have to go to the players. I never mentioned once to the players about putting relegation fears to bed. They're highly intelligent young men and would have known exactly the situation. I just felt that if we played really well and we were emotionally there, the rest would hang together. Duncan Weir scored all of the Warriors' points in the first half, including a 15-minute try, but scores from Henry Purdy and Willie Heinz put Gloucester 15-13 in front. Niall Annette and Darren Barry then crashed over to give Worcester a 27-15 lead before battening down the hashes after Purdy's 62nd-minute try to seal victory. It was a fantastic performance and really brilliant defensive display as well from the lads, Solomon said. 
Towards the end of the match, when we needed to close it out, there was one time when my heart was going a little bit quicker. And I said to the lads at half-time that we're in an arm wrestle here and if we can just cut out the unforced errors or minimise them at least, then we can build some pressure on them. I thought we were able to do that in the second half. Fly half Danny Cipriani was causing Warriors heaps of problems in the first half, but he was forced off with a hand issue on 57 minutes. Influential scrum half Heinz also left the field late on. Don't get me wrong, I think they're terrific players, Solomon said. But even when they were on, I thought we could do it. I always talk about the performance and I felt during training early in the week that we weren't quite there. We had a talk about that on Friday and practised much better from there. I think we got into the right emotional frame of mind and that's the key for us. If we're in the right frame of mind emotionally, then the lads will bring it. And on the impact of the Warriors supporters, Solomons added, they were absolutely brilliant. I'd like to thank all our staff in our commercial department for putting out the flags. And I'd like to thank the supporters too. Their support was incredible. Cricket News. Worcestershire CEO Matt Rawnsley is to again stage his members' forums on a regular basis during the 2019 season at Blackfinch New Road. Forums were staged on the opening day of the Specsavers County Championship matches at the county's headquarters last summer. They took place before the start of play in the Graham Hick Pavilion from 9.30am onwards. Members had the opportunity to ask questions of Rawnsley. They were crept abreast of the latest news in a winter forum held by Rawnsley, which was also attended by club chairman Fanos Hira, skipper Joe Leach and head of sports science and medicine Ben Davis. It's Rawnsley's intention to repeat the 2018 formula this summer. The first members' forum of the 29 campaign will be on May the 14th, the first day of the encounter against Durham at Blackfinch New Road. Ronsley said, I introduced the forums last summer with the intention of giving members the opportunity to ask anything they wanted on any subject. We had a wide and varied response and I tried to be as open as possible with my answers. I will not always agree with what members say, but I think it's important to be transparent and we intend to repeat the forums in 2019. And it's the end of the basketball season, apparently. Worcester Wolves end season with away defeat. Worcester Wolves concluded their 2018-19 season with a 100-83 defeat at Chester Phoenix on Sunday. Daryl Coombs stood out in the early stages as a swift six points were followed by an assist for fellow guard Mickey Severa. Robert Crawford rose highest to tip in a door to Sean Freeman miss as the second quarter began, restricting Cheshire's lead to just 21-19. to Freeman finally got one to fall soon after the break, but ex-Worcester forward Disraeli Lou Fardeju did likewise at the end of the third quarter to maintain a 72-56 Cheshire cushion. Jordan Whelan had a busy final period and Leicester Prosper engaged in an entertaining big man battle with seven-foot CJ Gettys as Phoenix did just enough to keep Wolves at bay. Coombs and Whelan joined top scored with 16 points, closely followed by 15 from Prosper. Last day victory for Surrey Scorchers levelled their win-loss record with Worcester at the foot of the table. But, and I think this means Worcester having triumphed in two of the three games between the teams, it means that Surrey have finished bottom. And that's it for this week on uh, all the news items. So we're just going to wrap up with birthdays for next week. 
the team would like to wish Marilyn Kendall a very happy birthday for the 6th of May. Evelyn Stevens' birthday is on the 7th and Cynthia Walker is on the 8th. So happy birthday to all of you for next week. Hope you have a wonderful day, each and every one of you. Uh, Phil, I think, has the thought for the day. So if you'd like to give us that. that I do, Pippa, and I would like to, yes. Thought for the day comes from Matthew chapter 10, verses 29 to 31. And it asks, Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? Yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from the will of your father, and even the very hairs of your head are numbered. So don't be afraid. You are worth more than many sparrows. And uh, finally, I have the sunrise and sunset times. Sunrise today was at 5.30 a.m. and sunset 8.35 p.m. We're only about six weeks now from the longest day. Yeah. Yeah, Six or seven weeks. So that brings us to the end of this week's recording, apart from the obituaries, which you can listen to after the music. I'd like to thank tonight's readers, Phil and Jane, and the production team, John Plush, doing our recording, and Carol again for copying and admin. So it's goodbye from me. Goodbye for now. And goodbye from me. These are the obituaries for this week. Mary Veronica Bladen, née Parker, of Kemsey, passed away peacefully on April the 20th, aged 87. Funeral service at St Mary's Church, Kemsey, took place on Thursday the 2nd of May at 2pm, followed by interment in the churchyard. No flowers by request, please, but donations, if desired, for St Richard's Hospice may be left at church or sent to Bedwardine funeral services. Val Johnson of Peopleton passed away in Worcestershire Royal Hospital on April the 22nd, aged 85. A service of thanksgiving will be held in Peopleton Church on Friday, May the 3rd at 12.30pm. Family flowers only, please. Donations in memory of Val may be sent to E. Hill and Son Funeral Directors, Pershaw, WR10 1HZ. Margaret Alice Drake, nay Yeats, of Perrywood Walk, passed away suddenly but peacefully on April the 8th, aged 92. The funeral service at Worcester Crematoriums on Tuesday, May the 7th at 1pm. Flowers or donations, if desired, for cat's protection may be sent to E.J. Gummery and Son, 6870 Ombersley Road, Worcester, WR3 7EU. A collection plate will also be available at the crematorium. Alan Edwin Fenby passed away on April the 21st. Funeral service to take place at Gloucester Crematorium on Friday, May the 3rd at 2pm. Family flowers only. Donations, if desired, to Alzheimer's Society may be sent care of Goodwin's Funeral Directors, 8 Old Cheltenham Road, Long Levens, Gloucester, GL2OAW, telephone 01452 500 Margaret Rose Beamond passed away on Friday, April the 5th.
Family flowers only, please, but donations, if desired, for the Stroke Association and the British Heart Foundation may be left in a donations box provided or sent to AV Band, 41 St Nicholas Street, Worcester. John H. Davis passed away on April the 4th. Funeral service will take place at Worcester Crematorium on Friday, May the 10th at 1pm, to which all are welcome. Family flowers only, please. Any inquiries to the Cooperative Funeral Care, telephone Worcester, double two one three seven. Robert William Evans, known as Bob, passed away on April the 11th, 2019. Funeral service at St John in Bedwardine Church on Friday, May the 3rd at 1.30pm, followed by a committal at Worcester Crematorium. Family flowers only, please, but donations, if desired, for St Richard's Hospice may be left on the collection plate at church or sent to E.J. Gummery and Son, 68-70, to 70, Ombersley Road, Worcester. Margaret Hemming passed away on April the 7th. The funeral service will take place at St Mark's Church, Worcester, on Tuesday, May the 7th at 12 noon, followed by internment at Astwood Cemetery. Family flowers only by request. Donations, if desired, to the British Lung Foundation may be sent care of AV Band Funeral Directors, 41 St Nicholas Street, Worcester. Ian Malcolm Phillips of Worcester and Seaford passed away peacefully at home on April the 24th, 2019, aged 61 years. Funeral service at St Stephen's Church on Wednesday, May the 8th at 2.30pm, followed by committal at Worcester Crematorium at 3.15pm. Family flowers only, please, but donations, if desired, for St Richard's Hospice may be left on the collection plate at church or sent to E.J. Gummery and Sonny, 68-70, Ombersley Road, Worcester, WR37EU. Titch White, late of Castle Street, passed away peacefully at Worcester Royal Hospital on April the 2nd, 2019, aged 78 years. The funeral service will take place at Worcester Crematorium on Monday, May the 13th at 3pm. Family flowers only, donations for Air Ambulance and the RNLI. There will be a collection plate at the crematorium or may be sent to Martin Grinnell Funeral Services, 1 Bewdley Street, Evesham, WR 114AD 01386422233. Reverend Canon John Campion of Pershaw, formerly Rector of Flabbury, on April the 23rd, 2019, died peacefully at Bricklehampton Hall after a long illness, aged 91 years. Funeral service at Pershaw Abbey on Tuesday, May the 14th at 2pm, followed by private interment. No flowers by request. Donations for St John the Baptist Church, Flagbury, may be sent to E. Hill and Son Funeral Directors, Pershaw, WR101HZ. Ernest Don Reyes, known as Don, passed away in hospital on April the 14th, 2019, aged 90. A service to celebrate his life will take place on Thursday, May the 9th, 2019, at 12.15pm at Worcester Crematorium. 
Flannery Flowers Only Please, donations if desired, to Acorns Children's Hospice, can be left on the plate at the crematorium or sent to AV Band, Funeral Directors, 41 St Nicholas Street, Worcester, WR1 1UW. Neil Evans. Neil passed away peacefully at home. Funeral is at Worcester Crematorium, May the 17th at 2.30pm. Donations to St Richard's Hospice. Casual dress, please. (laughs) 